Aloha, and welcome to SUP FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. Well, welcome to Season 4 of the SUP FM podcast. I'm Simon Hutchinson, and I'd like to welcome all those new paddleboarders who joined us last week during our Beginner's Week. This episode is brought to you in association with Starboard. Starboard has a long history in board design with Sven Rasmussen entering the windsurfing market with innovative designs back in 1994 and building the brand to become market leader within a decade. Starboard is quick to recognise the huge potential of stand-up paddling while maintaining careful consideration for their environmental impact and have continuously worked to produce the best boards and paddles for all abilities. So go check them out and to help you we've got the link in the show notes and thank you to Starboard for your support for the show. One of the features we're aiming to bake into these season four episodes is to highlight the work of those SUP instructors out there and give them a bit of recognition. So today we've got a message from ASA instructor Adam from Island Wiki SUP, who are up there in beautiful Northern Ireland with some great beginners tips. Now, if you're an instructor and you want to mention on the show, then check out the show notes to find out how to drop us a message. Hi, this is Adam from Island McGee SUP in Northern Ireland. For beginners, safety is number one. So always start off with a lesson where you'll not only learn correct technique, but also see safety and how to plan and prepare before heading out. Apart from that, my main bit of advice is to have fun, play about, move about on your board, fall in and get used to falling in, get used to being wet and climbing back up on your board. Um, The more times you fall in and get wet, the better you're going to get. Thanks, guys. Bye. This episode features Sven Rasmussen, the founder of Starboard, which is a brand which was originally an upstart company seen as really quite insignificant by the larger multinational windsurf brands. But Sven is a passionate guy and this shines through in this interview where he talks about his love for the ocean and for innovation. And he also tells a great story about his experience as an Olympic competitor and meeting the great Muhammad Ali. One area he's particularly passionate about is the environment and Starboard have done a great deal of work across a number of environmental areas to minimise their effect on the environment and to influence other corporates and organisations to do the same. So here's the inspirational and enthusiastic founder and leader of Starboard, Sven Rasmussen. Hi Sven, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the SUPFM podcast. Thank you, Simon. It will be fun to see where we explore and uh, and what we learn. So thanks for having me on board. Well, that's great. Now, something that's coming up very soon is the Tokyo Olympics. And before I go back into your um, long history in water sports, I know that you competed one of the really iconic games back in 1984, which was the Los Angeles Olympics, and you competed as a windsurfer. Could you just tell me a little bit about what that experience was like? Because it seems like it was an absolutely spectacular games. Yeah, you must understand I'm from a little kind of village in southern Norway and, and learned to, to windsurf there through my, my family. And, and then uh, suddenly to be on the road to Los Angeles, that was a pretty, pretty big thing. 
and and being there amongst all these incredible athletes and being a part of the whole celebration was uh, yeah it was an experience uh, totally outstanding so yeah it kind of is <laughs> if anybody has a chance to go to the olympics it's definitely well worth all the sweat and tears so yeah, that was totally uh, amazing it was also the first time for windsurfing in the olympics there was a lot of unknown factors and a lot of excitement so indeed the olympic spirit is burning strong within ever since Brilliant. And you went in there as reigning world champion, weren't you? Didn't you win the, the Mistral World Champs just before the Olympics started? Yeah, yeah. So we had we had the Olympics there and I was winning the Mistral Worlds just before. And the guy that won the Olympics, Stefan Vandenberg, he was, I think we had actually a, a shared, well, I won maybe the event that, that, that was, but we had one shared first place in the event. And that was maybe the first and last ever photo finishing in, in, in the sport of uh, sailing. So that was also exciting. But yeah, when you're coming to these important championships, it's a big uh, mind game. And and I have a lot of respect for all these paddleboarders out there that are competing every day, or at least every week usually, maybe not in a COVID period, because they are, they are definitely putting all their ambitions on the line every day. So... Interesting to see as you talk about Olympics. I'll jump forward and maybe 2032, and maybe we have a paddleboarding in there, and that's going to be something. That's, I haven't got that down on my interview list, but that, that's, that'd be a really interesting uh, thing to ask you about. What's your feeling about that? Because obviously it's been talked about for quite some time. Obviously surfing is, is there at, at Tokyo. What are your feelings about moving the sport into that area? You, you're obviously very well connected with some of the, the governing bodies. How do you think that's going to shake up in the future? Yeah, it's pretty much just like everything else we humans are involved with. We need humans to collaborate. Mm. And if you're able to find the right people to work together uh, to get uh, the sport towards the Olympics, uh, some collaborations maybe between the different associations, we definitely will see that in 2032, which means that it will be official maybe by 2027 that it goes to 2032. Um, can there be some showcase, some sort of discovery exhibition in Los Angeles in 28? Mm, quite possible. And we'll see what ICF has up their sleeve. That's the International Kayak Federation. They already have, I think, more than 10 gold medals uh, in the Olympics. So maybe they can, they can look at their opportunities there. So, yeah, it does a lot for a sport to become Olympic. It just gets that extra level of support on a national level, so, which goes down to read. So basically, all the, so many clubs can come alive. So I, I would really hope that we can find some good collabs to see see a real momentum towards paddleboarding in the Olympics. And just seeing that people that are now getting into the sport, let's say mm. you're whatever, 13, 14, 15 years old, you are shining there in whatever, 10, 12 years, that would be exciting. Absolutely. We certainly haven't. We've certainly been helping that with the, the growth of the sport over the, the last few years. But just to go back to Los Angeles Olympics, anyone who listens to the podcast will know I do try and do my research here. But uh, is that right that you met Muhammad Ali when you were out there? <laughs> yeah, Muhammad Ali. Well, that must be a dream. You can imagine this, that 
we were having a party. Those days, windsurfing was, was a wild sport, so we had great parties. And next door, they told us Muhammad Ali was hanging out, actually living with his wife and, and, and his daughters. And so I thought, that's fantastic. Let's go and check if he's real. So we went and knocked on his door. Oh, we knocked on the door, and out came Muhammad Ali. And he said, hey, guys, what's up? And they said, I said, that's great. Come on in. And then we were hanging out and sharing a few stories and said, thank you. And yeah, can you imagine this man uh, being such a hospitable person, just letting somebody off the street coming in to, to, to share with his family? I guess that is just uh, shining on the character of maybe the most amazing sports person ever. If, if you study his background and what he really did, besides being the best fighter on the planet, astonishing. So big inspiration for anybody that cares about other humans or cares about the sports or what have you. So yeah, that was a great moment indeed. So thank you for bringing that up. No, that's fantastic. Big icon and a big inspiration for me as well. So it's great to hear that story. So just to bring you back, your kid growing up in, is it Arundel in in Norway? Norway as a country is not known for its warmth. It's got a great maritime heritage, but not the the warm weather of Thailand or Hawaii or whatever. And just, just briefly take me through your water sports history and how you got into windsurfing just to kick us off. Yeah, I always like to explore, so I tried most sports available. I was actually quite much into karate and fighting and things like this, you know, that fascinated me. I was a small kid, I had to defend myself. So then suddenly one day I saw my, actually my father gave me a uh, an edition of the National Geographics. It was a kid's edition. And in that, there was a story on windsurfing, something I'd never heard about before. And there there were... Uh, Matt Schweitzer, the father of the famous Sein Schweitzer. He was out there on Tahoe, sailing along with Susi Svartek, another champion of the time. And just seeing how that board was moving forward over the water, bubbles behind it. And then you were standing there with the wind in your arms. I said, that's me. That's, that must be the ultimate thing you can do in life, pretty much. So I, I was hooked on the sport before I ever tried it. It was like this moment still is very clear in my mind. So what I can say is um, photographers definitely have a, a magic way to lure us into, into all sorts of actions. And then it just went on. My happens to be that my, my sister was hanging out with uh, a boyfriend who started to give windsurfing lessons. They married later, so that was all good. And, and I went around delivering newspapers for a couple of years Got myself a board, a used board, and I trained a lot. And I managed to walk more hours with the newspaper. Got my ticket to to the worlds, and then and then things just snowballed. Suddenly, you were in the Olympics, and then we had ten years on the pro world tour, like a backpacker, really, visiting all these amazing islands and coastlines and what had you. Just it was a fairy tale. Really, that sport gave me 15 years of just outlandish experiences. Then, and then one day we landed in Thailand, and I've been here ever since. And, and that was good fun. You know, I, I don't really know anything about much, but I, I, I know what a good board feels like. And I know how to sense what to change in these boards. And uh, as I discussed with our friends when I was younger, I said, I probably can't do anything much, but I can find good people to help me to get stuff done. And uh, that's the evolution of the brand. Uh, we love to make boards. We found a good factor to make them. 
and uh, and then uh, it's just a matter of finding these people and finding ways to motivate them to feel that the journey we are on is a special journey because being involved in this industry in this sport at this time is it is very it, it, we, are, we are so lucky we are, I can't put the names and words onto it it's just such a special moment in time and and that's really that's really how the story goes on pretty much trying to uh, trying to just uh, grow the stock getting more people on board and and feel how how we can just become let's call it protectors of all these beautiful coastlines and oceans and waters and whatever have you out there and well uh, I'll double further into this we have companies like Lidl and Decathlon and Body Glob, you know, they make millions of paddleboards, getting all these people out there. And that's fantastic. You can imagine because of these companies, we see millions of new paddlers getting onto the water. And then comes to our little chapter at Starboard. We want to see how can we get these people, all these paddlers out to find ways to protect and speak up for what they are finding out there. So that's a nutshell, motivating our own crew and finding ways to bring all these active paddlers, get them to see that they can do something for the environment that are paddling. One way or another, everybody has their way to do it. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. And that whole sense of purpose around the water sports industry, it's something that hooked me in and before we... Um, started recording, I, I was telling you about my first experience, which wasn't the most promising. It was horizontal rain in a grey day in England. And even that really hooked me into the sport. I think we've all got a real responsibility to look after these new paddlers and help move them into the next level of enjoyment. Because as you say, it, it delivers so many different benefits. People yeah. talk about blue mind and obviously we've got the environmental aspect, which we'll talk about in a second. But before we move on and talk specifically about SUP, there are some lessons to be learned from Windsurf. Obviously, it's where you've cut your teeth, but Windsurf sort of headed down a bit of a blind alley in the 1980s when the design and so on got so elite that it disconnected with all of the everyday weekend warrior windsurfers out there. And I'm, I'm just quite interested uh, in, you know, your view of that process and how that happened and, and how we in the SUP industry can make sure that that doesn't happen in our sport. Yeah, so it, that's a very good point. And what did happen in windsurfing was that we had our eyes set on Hawaii and other amazing places. And we had superstars like Robin Nash out there doing amazing things in the waves and everywhere else. Robbie is like uh, just such a hero for, for all of us windsurfers. However, on the other side, it became, let's say, in Europe, we didn't quite have those conditions. So, but we were lured into purchasing these amazing wave boards and speed boards and things that we just didn't have conditions for in Europe. And for many other places, you probably also didn't have conditions for it on, in mainland America. So we got a little bit lured into the media. Every magazine would have one better wave shot than another. And so I remember when I was on pro tour and I came home and I wanted to sell my old gear. It was, I felt a, it was a bit sad because I, of course I sold it and people wanted it, but I thought you can't have a lot of fun with it because you can use it that many times a year. And, and before you learn to use it, it's going to take some time. So the whole industry went blindfolded into promoting and developing uh, 
this type of gear. So yes, the the sport plunged. You can imagine in in the fjord of Oslo, it's the Bay of Oslo. You could say we had sinkers. These boards had less volume than the the weight of the person. If there was a storm for for two days in the fall, you could use the gear. That was about it. And I was okay, seemingly. They were just sitting on land waiting for that storm forever. So the sport went down, and uh, and then we were so lucky. We had some people reaching out to us. Jamie Lever, one of those, who said, you're going to have to make whiteboards. And then we made started to make whiteboards. It worked. And then we... Uh, then you basically get planing earlier and they're whites, so they're easy to learn on, all that kind of stuff. Straightforward to understand now, but back in, in the mid-90s, it was different. And then we had the, in, the co-inventor of windsurfing, Jim Drake, who invented windsurfing together with Hoyle Schweitzer, who is then Sane Schweitzer's grandfather. The fa- and, we, and, and then Sane Schweitzer's father is Matt Schweitzer, the first person that saw windsurfing. So here we are. So Jim, Jim Drake, he... Um, I met him at a show in San Francisco, and then I thought, I want to see if he can get that Jim Drake to test some of these white things and see what his thoughts are on the selling them further. So I flew to Santa Barbara, met with him. He had just broken his arm, hadn't been windsurfing for a while, but he went out and he did well, and then we decided to collab, and he went even wider. And he said, Sven, to get people to believe in what we feel and what we see right here now, we have to win some world championships. So then we set out this project to make some boards that needed to win the world championships. And Jim was right. His design won the first six places in, in the following world championships. So Jim brought uh, all his uh, expertise. And Jim also currently, after 40 years of being challenged, still holds the world record for man flight. His X-15 set the record in 67, and nobody's beaten it since then. We have been so lucky to have these amazing people coming in and, and supporting, supporting us. And as we talk about this, um, I'll fast track a little bit. We had in 1999, my father came out to Lake Taco, where we are in Thailand. He was paddling around on one of those wide windsurfing boards. I asked him, why are you doing this? Why don't you get yourself a kayak or something? And he said, no, I like to stand up because it feels better on the body and I can see fish and I can see nature. And I said, thank you very much. And uh, <laughs> it took us whatever, five, six more years before we realized that he was paddleboarding crazy. That, that's incredible. But just coming back, because innovation is something that you've absolutely um, led on all the way through. And, and as you said, at a time windsurf was going narrow, you took the decision to go wide. And it really takes courage of, of convictions to get the the collaboration like you did with Jim Drake and to prove it and I know that in the early days of Starboard you had a lot of knockbacks and so on and told that windsurfing doesn't need a, a new brand to join all the other really big ones but you absolutely continued pushing forward on that and you know your innovation has continued up to date and you you're constantly innovating so I'd just like to get into your research and development because a lot of people, particularly new paddlers, they say, what's the difference between a brand like Starboard and a, and a new sort of startup type rebadged Chinese import Amazon type brand? And one of the main differences is the research and the development. And even this year, there are some fantastic innovations that you've brought in, which I'd like to talk about. But in terms of research and development, what's your process? How do you identify what you're going 
after? And how do you get it through to that final production? Yes, before even getting there, the, it is just about finding people that are interested in, in developing amazing gear. That's the first process. And once you have, when you have people on your side who can drive that, then uh, it moves forward. And uh, like just, it would be now uh, 30 minutes ago, I was out uh, paddling, testing uh, some later, some new 2023 all-star models together with uh, Oli O'Reilly, who is our product manager, has been that for over five years. And it, it comes to guys like Oli, and particularly Oli, who just isn't satisfied. You go out and I say, that seems to be good. And Roy says, no, it's not good enough. You know, it has to be that much better than last year. So we have to do this change. And I say, but we did all these changes already. No, we want to do more. We want to do more. We really want to make sure that we stoke people out. So it's just that ambition. And I think the pride on really making sure that if you're first going to deliver a new product, it has to be so good that if you had an old one, you want to... Sell that to your friend and you want to get your new one because that should be the difference. It shouldn't be rebadged. It should be that the experience of that new board really is worth for you to drive to the shop and get it and then, again, pass the other one on to, to somebody else. So that's the main thing. And then you dive down to all the details, all the different curves or shapes, all the ways to, to save the weights, how to make it also affordable. That's like a mystery of levels of coordinations, trying to see what did we do last year? What did we do five years ago? What are all the new ideas? How can you combine all these ideas? And how can you find out which one of them are really important? And that's really, so it is coming from the inspiration of just wanting to really go through this because to develop a great paddleboard, it does take an enormous willpower to just keep on reshaping and testing until you get to something good. So uh, then, yes, there are these beautiful computers and things we can sit and look at and we can cut, but often it just comes down to bringing the boards back and actually recutting them by hand to get exactly to transform what we felt last time we tested and see how can we rejig the, the V or the rocker or the or the outlines, or the thickness, or what have you, much based on experience. It's like an athlete always knows how to do things a little bit better if you play tennis, or if you paddle, or if you ski, whatever. And the same thing comes here when you are combining an athlete like Oli with his skills of development. Then they're able to put it together. Same with Raul Delgado, who is in charge of the inflatable scene out on the water, back into the drawing board, trying to understand how to make it better, and then back to, to make the machine test to see what are the vibration levels on these new products or the, these new drop stitch weaves and these new laminates that we put on the sides or inside and what have you. So it's, it is dedication to details and understanding the matrices of how it all works together because maybe one thing doesn't work by itself, but combined with something else, certainly the magic happens. So it's a, it's a very complicated art, and that's why we will never make the best board. The best board will never be made. And that's the fun part of it. It's just a journey forever. And, of course, our idea is that we just want to see, can we at least, number one, make something that is at least as good or, let's say, better than what is currently in the market? 
but then benchmark it what what we have made so we at least can guarantee that is this much better than what we did a few years ago that is what we want to what the promise the, the market yeah and it comes from a really deep knowledge of both the product itself the paddle boards how they work and also what's best for the users out there because i think henry ford famously said if I ask people what they want, they'd ask for a faster horse. You can avoid that by having that knowledge of what's best for the paddlers out there. And I think one of the, the things that I've been most impressed by is your focus on people who are actually using it. And while you provide improvements, you still try and make sure that the use is as easy as possible. And what, one of the ways that I see that is in your race board and your touring boards, and they're getting narrower. And I think it was last year, the sprint, you delivered a sprint, which the width was under 20 inches. And that's not something for everyone. But because of the, the shapes and so on that, that you uh, make the board underneath, it, it, it actually makes it more accessible for people rather than less. So we can run around in a circle on that, and that's very good. So we can look at the dugout, that's good fun. Uh, again, uh, Brian Simonski from California is the godfather of dugout paddleboards, and somebody sent me a photo of him paddling that one of his boards, and of course we called him up immediately and said, please come work together, this looks really exciting. And ever since, that is the way to make a faster uh, race board, because race boards always want to be as narrow as possible. But for you to keep the balance, you need to sit as far down as you possibly can. You don't want to run around in high heels. You want to get as close to the water as possible. So that's a very simple simple analysis that in race sports, we need to be very much dug out. And in the beginning, that was tough because it wasn't really the fashion. There was even regulations against it. So we, had to, we had to explain the paddleboarding uh, race community that, you know, please dig down, you'll get better performers. That was really a funny moment in time. But looking at, the, looking at one point of development that I was really stoked about, it was a board called the Whopper. So this is going back to... Uh, Wow. Yeah, it must have been uh, 2007, maybe, eight, can't recall exactly. Uh, I was going to go on a surf trip to Bali with my girlfriend at that time. And she's now my wife. <laughs> and I thought, is God, we're going to have to make a board for her to make it super easy. She hasn't been surfing before. And so we took a board and we just, it has to be really wide, so it's super stable. And then we make, have to make extraordinary skinny rails. So she still can put her weight onto it and make it turn. And of course, it has to have all the curves. And that became the whopper. We kind of, that was one off, came back straight to the mold and still our best selling board, you could argue. So this comes back to what you say. If you make things that is easy to make, easy to use for anybody and performs, then you are a winner. And in the end, the people obviously vote that. So. Easy is good. Then uh, we came some years later. It was a, it was a David. He is a graphic artist from America, very famous one. He told me at the trade show that you've got to have to make a board that on the deck looks like a nice surfboard, like maybe a longboard. And on the bottom, you can put in the genetics of, uh, of performance. But it shouldn't be to get people to feel easy about something that should look simple and the bottom is where the performer should be so then went back home and we talked with ollie 
and then we took the genetics, the concave bottoms with side planes, and put that onto more of a surfboard outline. That became the GoBoard. And again, GoBoard is also our bestseller. So between Go and Whopper, this is the way forward. So again, making things super simple, good performance, and, and then everybody are happy. So it's pretty straightforward how, how all that works. Need to make stuff that people jump on board and they're happy immediately. That's exactly how it is. And, and then trying to find what's the next level in that. Where can we now bring that further? And again, we were just out there. Now it is 30, now it's 40 minutes ago. It takes to test the next level of how to make these race boards really easy to ride. And just bring that added level of, uh, of stability into them. That's a never-ending um, journey. But what is important is to keep track of what we learn. If something worked good five years ago, that we remember it. So we don't keep on... Uh, retesting but rather remember what worked and then bring that forward and remember what didn't work and try to not uh, repeat that too often absolutely and it's about keeping that top of mind and and learning those lessons from windsurfing that you don't um, innovate so much that you lose some of those uh, previous advantages and i just want to ask you about the asap range that you've got at the moment because obviously the majority of sub schools and so on out there and the majority of the market probably at the moment is all about inflatable because people are are joining the sport at the moment but obviously there are some real advantages with hard boards just tell us a bit about the thinking of behind the asap board because that looks like that's addressing some of the restrictions and the reasons why people you know don't go for hard boards to start off with yeah, I mean, an ASAP board, the, the, the shape base is a go board. And then one is basically putting around the rails a really high density EVA. So EVA is kind of the, what you have as a sole on a flip flop. So you put that around the rail. So when your paddle hits that rail, it's very strong. The rail doesn't go to crap. And then you have the softer EVA where you are standing. This was developed actually by Jeff Maloney back in 1996. We were sitting down there in the street <laughs> thinking about that stuff. Yeah, uh, just that concept. He, he put it into, uh, I think, some soft top surfboards or something. So that's a very good offering because everything is soft and nice. You can lay it on, you can fall on it, and yet you have that uh, strong higher density EV on the rails. And then you have a, have a very solid bottom. So that's a very good option for, for center schools or also for if you want to bring your dog on board, your dog can, can travel anywhere on the board when you have full EVA cover. Mm, and, and that ASAP stands for is it as, as strong as possible. And, and obviously the downside that some people have or the hesitation people have about buying a hardboard is because potentially it can crack or get scratched or whatever. But these ones are designed to obviously guard against that. Yeah, they are. However, whatever we make in the end, they will crack. It's just like this, so they won't last forever. And it's always a fine balance. We can make them stronger. It means we have to put in more more glass or more reinforcements, then it, they become heavier. But we have a good medium now, and we work on there are many other technologies that we are dabbling in now. If you look forward a couple of years, we will see other compositions that are even more durable and without adding too much weight. This is just an ongoing journey to find uh, stuff that lasts longer, is stronger, and yet keeping the 
price proper. Again, something that Oli is working a lot on to address the price that uh, we are able to keep uh, the sport as uh, accessible as it possibly can. On the other hand, that is, is, that is looked after really well by the inexpensive brands. Those who are selling direct, they, they're able to get to that low price point for many reasons. It's also catered by them. Again, we always thank all those brands for servicing the market in so many different places. So, so that, that's really interesting. And really, I feel the same way about it. It's all about getting people into the sport, because as I know from my own bitter experience, you start with a board and then you don't tend to end there. As your sub journey increases, you end up adding. So is that the way that you see these sort of new entry, low price pointed type brands? Yeah, I don't know exactly what the prices are in Europe, but I, I think you get them at under 300 euro. And it means that a lot of people can afford to go and try it. They can try it with their own board. And, and then some people will, will have a great experience. Some people will feel that this is not a sport for them. But knowing that there are millions of new people trying paddleboarding every year because the cost, the, is so low, then that will bring a lot of people into the sport. So I think that the two big things we will see now, well, one has started already, that's the low-cost sports, bringing so many people in. And then on the other hand, ICF, the International Kayak Association, to see, or Canoe Association, to, to see how they will set up systems uh, globally, all these clubs and centers and training methods, to really create a sport out of paddleboarding because now we have got millions of people coming in and many of those may want to start to participate in the small local events that will be catered for. So you can create really a, a broad sport out of paddleboarding. And that's when we at Starboard become excited when, when there's a lot of people going to competition because one part is really like entry level, but it's even more fun when we see competition out there amongst the amongst people around the planet. So uh, I think it's going to be a fabulous uh, future. Next five years are, are really going to be exciting with, uh, with all that happens. And as we all know, COVID helped us to get people back into nature. So mm-hmm. uh, that's a very positive aspect of an otherwise terrible uh, situation. Absolutely. And so stand-up paddleboarding, it's been the perfect storm. Yeah. How do you keep up with demand? Because you know there is massive demand for both yours and other products. I know there are various other factors involved in the UK. We're struggling really to get hold of some quality brands. How have you managed that huge uptick in, in demand for, for your products? If our... Uh... Distribution partner in the UK, Paul Simmons, would be listening in. He would know that we have not been able to keep up with demand. I just have to apologize that demand was, the demand was too big. Uh, the market really took off. And, and of course, we have sometimes daily, sometimes weekly meetings with our major supply partners to see how we can be more efficient, how we can change the capacities around, how we can prioritize. But, but we have majorly failed in, in, in meeting the demand. Sometimes, like some countries, grow three times over, and they haven't necessarily booked that. We just do our best, and, and it's just fabulous to see what happens. It's, it's, a, it's another dream to see that suddenly you are in a, in a sport that grows so fast. So that's, it's, it's just positive and positive. 
What I also wanted to talk to you about is your innovation in terms of the area of the environment. And, and you have absolutely led on this in the industry. Obviously, in terms of your products, you're using upcycled fishing nets for your fins and various other aspects of your your production cycle. But looking at your sort of corporate connections with areas of the environment, it really is not something that, that a lot of corporates do. A lot of corporates do sort of one thing or maybe a couple of things. You've got so many different strands that you're looking at in terms of both your responsibilities and also influencing other corporates to improve their environmental behavior and I know that starts with the Tor Hyadale Climate Park where you're um, planting mangroves for every paddleboard that's been could you just tell us a bit about that park and mangroves and then maybe just chat us through some of the other things that you're doing in terms of your focus on the environment first of all the the number one part is the people that help us to develop the environmental projects and in here we have Tasman Chilcott and Lise Howard in uh, in the UK that are full-time working with us on all eco projects and also Gun Tip here in Thailand and Oli already helped us a lot so we are we are quite a few crews so therefore we have the ability to uh, look into a lot of bits and pieces because it's a full-time profession <laughs> to, to, to move forward and it's when I grew up, I, uh, I heard on the TV that there was something called climate change. That must have been like in the late, maybe the mid-80s. I was really scared when I heard about that. But then I went windsurfing for many years and I didn't think about it. Then our, uh, our group advisor told me I should open my eyes a little bit and I should join him for a conference in Yangon in Myanmar. And I went to that conference and I met a man and he was the same man that had talked about cl- uh, climate change back in the mid-80s. And his main thing was that, okay, guys, it seems like we can look at uh, natural sequestration as a way where us normal people can uh, do something about climate change at least. And then it's the biosphere trying to get green back. I cry every time I see a tree being cut. It's really... A, disgusting thing to see happen and uh, and what we love is to see trees being planted and when you plant these mangrove trees that are sitting um, on the shoreline they are not only beautiful that is deep roots that takes care of the coastline so it doesn't erode too quickly it helps the fish uh, get the clean water so they the fish are uh, the stock is growing fast, protects the line, the coastline from tsunamis and things. And, and then it, it has these mud settlements. It, it draws down a lot of carbon more than any other tree by a lot and keeps it in that mud, in that sediment. So they, the local university found that in this park, 997 kilo uh, carbon per 20 years. So that's mm. like... A, amazing amounts. So we thought, okay, so now we know that to the left. And then we went to a conference in Costa Brava, our international sale conference. And I thought, okay, we've got to have to try to see what can Starboard do in terms of environmental engagement. Because if you look at a company like Patagonia, they've been, they've been doing things forever and we had done nothing. So we thought, got to have to do something, but we don't know what to do. So I said, okay, in, in three years, we will be carbon net positive. That was the announcement at the meet, and I had no idea how to do it. I just said, we have to do it. 
and then I, I studied, and then I, I went back and I, I met uh, uh, with the people in the park. And at that time, we we were explained about the carbon sequestration through mangrove reforestation. And then we thought that here is a way that we can meet our net uh, net emission aim. And then we figured out that if we just plant enough of these trees, we can go much further. So we just kept on planting. And now we are like, I think, first of all was to get uh, past positive. So we just calculated the footprint back to 1993. And so we wiped that out. And then looking forward, I think from 17 or 16, we then wanted to be 10 times positive every year. So other companies looking into it, like Apple got their own park down in Colombia. And, mm-hmm. and, and our Salesforce is a, maybe the number one sales program on the planet. They are actually in our park together with a few other tech companies that have figured out this is a smart way to move forward. So that, that has been great. And then sharing about it. The whole idea is how to get people to understand the amazing opportunity of reforestation and protecting what's left. It seems like we're left in this, uh, in this vacuum of ignorance where people just uh, don't do anything about what they see being wrong. We see the Amazon being cut on every day and most other places things are being cut on, but we don't go to the streets and protest about it. We just say, oh, that was sad. And we, don't, we hardly even talk about it. Maybe we see it on CNN, but it's not necessarily stuff we talk about on Facebook. <laughs> I'm not on Facebook, so I don't know what people talk about there. <laughs> but basically, I don't think we spend much time on such very important issues. So we feel that it is very exciting to, to share these simple solutions with our customers and see how they are a part of our movement. If you buy a board, you are a part of our movement and, and you can share this engagement with your friends or wherever you work or whatever that there are ways to recreate nature and move forward. Even if you made, even if you buy something, that can be a positive thing. I think that's the main thing. Even though making a board is toxic and is polluted and maybe Starwood is one of the largest polluters in, in the water sports industry. We can still turn it around, of course, reducing all we can. We have another another 160 panels of solar coming up again, I think, on Wednesday. So we'll have whatever 400 of the panels on top of a, of a little office. Um, even though one is doing stuff like this, one can do so much more. One can take, one can go to the level and easily just wipe out the complete footprints. And mm. that's important for people to know that. Uh, these things are within grasp. The same thing coming to plastic. I just stopped buying anything that has single plastic emballage. If I go into a shop and it has only like particular food, if it has single plastic, I just don't buy it. I go home and I find something else. I just can't handle it. I feel it's such a disgrace to humans that, that we have to continue like this. So I have to protest, protest with myself. Everybody laughs about me, but, but it's how it is. And, and that's why we at Starboard just took away you know, all plastic packaging. We used to have a recycled dust bag, but that's fortunately also gone. Yeah, it's, I'm just struggling with, with our neglect of seeing all the opportunities in front of us, in particular this personal protest thing. Everybody should be able to say no thank you to so many silly things we offer these days. So that starts with our packaging. We don't offer anything in these silly packages. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. And it, it, you've got 
all sorts of relationships. We've got Parley, which is obviously on the marks on your boards around cleaning up, cleaning up the beaches. I think something that's been a strand, not just with starboard athletes on this podcast, but pretty much everyone, is that anyone who who benefits their mental health and their physical health from getting out on the water develops a real connection with the environment and becomes more aware of all of that plastic waste that washes up in rivers and and beaches yes sometimes we had to spend like 10 15 minutes just to clean the plastic around where we wanted to launch and i said that's not good so we so we did a pilot project with something called the the dog wood ring ocean alliance and and here we made a plastic footprint project so we found the complete plastic footprint of the boards Lots of different types of plastic. You have basically 80% of our board is fossil fuel. We call that plastic. EVA pads, EPS, paint, epoxy, it's all plastics. So we said we had to tax ourselves. So we taxed ourselves. And with that plastic tax, we are then funding the, the plastic retrieval systems at the beaches. So we have up to 50 people walking up and down the beaches in Shomburi most days. And this year, we're going to pick up 100,000 kilo. And we have at least 1.1 kilo per, per board. And we also started an apparel brand where for every piece, the, the apparel brand is called somewhere. So we are picking up 1.1 kilo plastic per item we sell out of that somewhere brand. So and they, that's a plastic-free brand. So we offer nothing else but organic cotton, got certified organic cotton. But if you buy an organic cotton cap, or a t-shirt or a sweater or something like this we pick up 1.1 kilo plastic because that's the same as uh, the average ocean pollution per capita per year so each person is in a way responsible for one for 1.1 kilo and in that way we can then that way a customer understands uh, his her own emission so we're just trying to connect people to simple solutions and, and that's uh, on that one. And then environment is, environment is one part. Of course, we also need to cater a little bit for, uh, for all these people who are putting together our uh, products. So last week we had an, uh, Tasmin and Lissy. They helped uh, on board us with the Fair Labor Association. So we are now a member of the Fair Labor Association, which is very good. We are probably the first, maybe the first sports brand, at least the first water sports brand that is a part of that. And now we're able to discuss really well with our uh, manufacturers, our board manufacturers, our rig manufacturers, for them to, uh, to also get on board with FLA. And they seem to be very interested in this. So we can, we, we can also get some, some better protection systems uh, for for our for those who put together our product, so that's a, that's another chapter that we are starting on, and that's going to be exciting. So altogether, the idea is that we make good stuff, and we run a good business, so we can afford to to actually look after that environment and look after the people that help to make all this possible. So it's again we are so happy because we we have so many people that help to make this a possibility for us now. So I'm yeah I'm stoked to have all these people that are making it happen. And then with you Simon coming in and letting people know about it, that's the main thing. And yeah, the whole the whole story is is evolving in ways I could never fathom. I never went to school. I didn't know what to do with myself. And now we have. 
there's all these people that are so good at doing so many things and to be involved with those people and move forward is exceptional i'm a lucky guy oh yeah incredible and lots of life lessons in that Sven, thanks so much for your time. There's so much that that we could have chatted about and I had on my list, but um, time's overwhelmed us. Sven, thanks so much. Keep on doing what you're doing and uh, hopefully uh, at some point you might meet on the water. Absolutely, Sven. Thank you very much. Be good and we will see you over there on the exotic island. Thank you for listening to SUP FM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.